I can literally feel Dave Katz having a heart attack as he sees me randomly moving that thing around and about to fall over. But it worked out, so that's good. Um, hey, thank you so much for being here, whether it's your, like I say, almost every Sunday, whether it's your first time with us or your 10,000th and first time with us. Um, <clears throat> we're just so glad you're here, and we're so glad to together as a body, be able to press into what does it mean to grow as a disciple and then as disciples of Jesus, what does it mean for us in all different moments to try to love and impact other people, uh, reach and impact them with God's love and truth. And that's what we have chances to press into together and grow into, and it's just really exciting to hear and see what God is doing through, again, we did Summer Spectacular, we got a trip uh, wrapped up over in the DR, finishing up. Uh, we got a community group of a bunch of folks about to have a picnic and a baby shower together this afternoon. Uh, there's great stories individually of you caring for each other, and so we're just so grateful for what God's doing. And uh, thank all of you who are part of that, and if you've not yet jumped in to help build the body here, uh, we would love to invite you to do that. So thanks for being here. What we do every Sunday is we open up a part of the Bible. Most times we go book by book, paragraph through paragraph. Uh, the good thing is that you don't hear the soapboxes of whoever's got the mic on. Uh, you hear what God wants because we just go <clears throat> into the passages that he set out and whatever's in the text is what we talk about. And so uh, coming up in the fall, we're going to do the book of Revelation like we've talked about. And we just finished up a series on first and second and third John. And we're going to kind of do some standalone things about Jesus coming up that we'll talk about in a minute. But uh, I'm excited and I prayed for how God wants to use his word to grow me. And I've prayed for how he wants to use this word in this text to maybe grow some of you and, and strengthen your faith and where you are in your journey. So I'd invite you to join me in a word of prayer as we pray over the sermon and what God is doing. Father, uh, thank you for the opportunity, like we say almost every week, to come to your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be in a body of people who care for one another and are supporting one another and um, <clears throat> serving one another. And thank you that within that, Father, you've given us an opportunity to reach out and to impact folks around us in our communities with your love and your truth. And we're just grateful and humbled by any good thing that comes out of that as the fruit of you. And you want us to know more about you and you want us to become more like Jesus. And so you've given us your word and your spirit. And so I come now, Father, dependently as we're going to spend some time together these next few weeks thinking about the Son, thinking about Jesus, that this will be a meaningful time for all of us to learn more about who Jesus is and to trust and depend more fully on him. And so we pray that you will cause that to happen, and we're dependent upon the Spirit, and we pray that for the glory of Jesus in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, back in 1996... Is anybody, uh, it's interesting now when I'm doing different things, some people are like, I was born in 2003. Woo! Well, way back before that, in 1996, there was a movie that came out, and the movie was called Twister. I don't know if you've seen the great film, spectacular Twister. Anybody here seen Twister? <clears throat> well, if you haven't, I'm about to ruin it for you, so here's a spoiler alert. It's about a twister. It's about tornadoes. It's about a group of people that chase tornadoes. I think that would be a really fun gig, don't you? Uh, and there's one scene in the movie where the monster tornado is coming towards them, and they're in a farmland, and silos are being destroyed, and cows are being thrown up into the air, and trucks are being overturned, and this thing's coming towards them, and it's going to kill them and send them off into wherever tornado sends you. And so there's all in this, there's this kind of final scene almost in the movie where there's all this stuff swirling around and these people are running from the tornado and they get into this barn or basement or something and all hope is gone, right? They're seconds away from being thrown out to whatever with everything swirling around them. And so somehow they take off their belt or they get a rope and they do something and they lash themselves to this pipe that's running deep into the ground and through this structure and they tie themselves to the pipe and the tornado comes by and then after the tornado has left in its wake, there's rubble, and there's overturned cows, and there's trucks upside down, but the stars have survived, and they are still tied with some $12 belt from Old Navy. They've survived like an F-27 tornado, right? In the moment when everything was swirling around them, 
They took their belt, they took whatever. They anchored themselves to something steady, and in the movie, they were able to survive that storm, survive what was swirling around them. And this morning, as you sit here this morning, or as you listen to this online, or watch it live with us online, maybe you feel like you're sitting here, but around you, there are all sorts of things swirling in your life. There are all sorts of storms that you feel you're stuck in the middle of, and it's tossing things, and it's unsettling. And maybe for some of you, uh, that's a financial situation. Uh, the reality is, we, I, I, can, I can't even buy yogurt anymore. It's like for little Greek Chobani yogurt is $2,010. <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe we'll buy a cow and churn our own yogurt, right? Maybe you're in a situation where things are getting really, really expensive, or you've had some unexpected things come up, or you've lost a job, or what you thought, and the financial situation is getting tight for you, and it's getting tough for you, and you feel like it's swirling. Maybe it's not finances, but maybe it's health. Maybe it's health. Maybe there's something unexpected that has occurred in the past month or so, or the past six months with your health has caused this tornado in your life. Maybe you had a health situation, but you thought it was under control, and it's kind of spun out of control, and it's causing you all sorts of emotion. Maybe the swirl around you, the storm you face, is just concerns and stressors that come. You feel like you're in the middle of a cultural tornado with cultural chaos swirling, and every time you turn on the news or click on your favorite website or Twitter feed, you're like, I don't even want to look at it anymore because there's so much bad stuff and stressful stuff and tragic stuff and chaotic stuff that you just feel like, I, I just need some steady ground to stand on in terms of our culture. Maybe the storm, maybe the tornado that's racing towards you is an emotional one. And they're like so many people. <clears throat> you, you hear these stories all the time, never struggled with anxiety, never struggled with depression or discouragement. And that was you. But over the past however many weeks or months, you're in this storm of discouragement or anxiety or depression that it is just churning you. And you don't know how to make heads or tails out of it. Maybe what's struggling or the struggle you're facing, the stress you're facing is a relationship one. Because there's some relationship where you just want smoothness. You just want it to be either the way it was or you want it to be the way you wish it would be and it's neither of those things. Instead, it's chaos. Instead, it's conflict. Instead, it's rockiness. Instead, it's silence. Instead, it's distance. And it's causing you all sorts of worries and concerns and storms. In moments when the storms come, in moments when everything around us is swirling, we do need to do what those guys in the movie did, and we, we, need to try to, we need to anchor ourselves to something steady. We need to tie ourselves to something that won't swirl, that won't move, that won't change, that will hold us fast in those moments when the storms come. And what we're going to think about the next seven weeks together is what is that thing? Who is that person. We're going to study seven statements that Jesus has made in the next seven weeks together. And each of those statements, and in different ways, he's going to reveal something about who he is. He's going to be reveal something about what he's offers. He's going to, Jesus is going to reveal something about what he's done. Jesus is going to reveal something about how he acts in our lives and how you can depend on him and how you can trust him. And each of those seven statements for you and for me, it's going to be a solid anchor on which we can fix ourselves. And my hope and genuine prayer is no matter what's going on in your life right now, that through these seven weeks that we spend together, you will be able, even if your circumstance doesn't change, to have something steady to tie yourself to and to trust upon that won't change. Even when your circumstance doesn't change, I hope that what Jesus reveals about himself will give you stu something steady to trust upon and to tie yourself to that won't change. Jesus makes these statements in terms of this I am statement, seven things that Jesus says he is. <clears throat> and I do think they're metaphors. But if they're not, 
email me. I think they're metaphors. Jesus is going to say, I am this, I am that, I am that. Seven different things that we're going to study in our weeks together. In the, those are in the Gospel of John. We just finished up. John wrote these three little letters to churches. And we're going to go back to the biography that John wrote about Jesus. And Jesus is progressively revealing to people who he is and why he came and what he's offered. And he uses this technique um, to tell amazing and meaningful and rich things about himself. So today... What we're going to do is we're going to jump into it. We're going to study the first of these seven I am statements, the chronologically the first I am thing that Jesus says he is. And in many ways, this is the most fundamental thing. In many ways, if you understand or you grasp or you benefit from each of the other things, but you don't get this thing, then we're really missing out on what Jesus most fundamentally came to do and most fundamentally who he was. So our text is going to be John 6. Verses 25 through 43, John 6, verses 25 through 43. If you've got a Bible, open it up to John 6. If you need a Bible, we got some out in the lobby. If you've got a device, swipe that thing open. Don't do Wordle. Open up to John. Uh, and John 6, 25 through 43. here's what we're going to do. We're going to see four things about ourselves and then four things about Jesus. Four things flowing from this I am statement about ourselves and four things about Jesus. So before we understand what's going on in John 6, 25 through 43, we need to understand the larger context. When did Jesus make this I am statement? What was going on? And so here is a satellite map of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee, it is uh, kind of in the northern part um, up in Israel. And uh, here is where the events are going to take place. The events are going to take place kind of in this little area uh, in the northwest quadrant of the Sea of Galilee. It's going to take place in a city in a town called Capernaum. Okay, So that's where Jesus is going to make this first statement. But the day before Jesus makes this statement, he's been over here somewhere. We don't know exactly where, but he's been over here, and in the verses preceding verse 25, uh, Jesus did this miracle on this side of the river. He'd been teaching about himself. He'd been telling some people these things. It got to be dinner time. There was no food, and this is one of the few miracles that's repeated in each of the four biographies about Jesus that Jesus did, where he miraculously took uh, some sardines uh, and and a can of Pringles, right? He took a little kid's lunch. He took some bread and he took some little fish and he performed this miracle where he fed thousands of people. The point of that miracle was to teach the disciples something crucial. It's an amazing story. One of my favorite things in the Gospels that he's teaching them. That has all just happened over there. And so after the events of that day conclude, sun is now set, the disciples have gone around, they've cleaned up after that feast, and the disciples get into this boat and they cross the other side to Capernaum. Jesus, as well, crosses over to the other side, and they spend the evening, the night, kind of, you know, maybe even early morning hours before the sunrise is over here. And that's where we pick up uh, the story for today, right there on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And so here's what happens. We read about it in verse 22. On the next day, so... Go back one more time if you, don't, if you don't mind, right? So Jesus is on that left side, and Jesus is on his left side, but there's still some people who are here. They come back the next day, and that's where we are. And the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. But his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, so they're over on that right side, and they're like, man, we came back for more stuff. Where's Jesus? We don't see him. What we see is when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats, and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. The people who had experienced that event on day one, and more people came. It's now day two, and they're trying to find Jesus. They, the text tells us they are seeking Jesus. And the question is, well, why? Why were they seeking Jesus? Why were they trying to find Jesus? What were they looking for Jesus for? Well, Jesus is going to tell us that in verse 25, the next few verses. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 26, Jesus answered them. So many times in the gospel, Jesus totally dodges the question. It's interesting. 
Um, and it's especially interesting sometimes in terms of grief. Sometimes there's things happen when really bad things have happened and the people are like, Jesus, where were you? Why weren't you here? You know what? Jesus totally dodges that question. That, that's not the question they're asking here. They're asking, hey, Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 26, Jesus answered them, dodges the question, but he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the food. What he said is, look, I did all, the point of, one of the points of what I did was this sign to reveal something to you about me, about who I was, but you didn't catch that. You didn't pay attention to that. You just liked your free meal. You enjoyed your picnic, complimentary from me, on the side of the lake. And you know what? The reason Jesus says you're trying to find me is because you ate your full of loaves. What he's saying is the only reason you're seeking me is, is you just want more stuff that I can give to you. You just want another free meal. You just want another free lunch. Jesus identifies that the people's focus, the people seeking him, the people's desire from him flowed from what they thought they could get from him. What they thought materially they could get from them. He, they could get from him. They, they wanted something physical. They wanted something material. They wanted something man, to satisfy what they hoped they would get in a worldly way. And they're like, well, we're going to go find Jesus and get some more bagels from him. Because that was really cool. Free food. And what is true in their hearts in that moment can so many times be true in my heart and maybe so many times be true in your heart as well. And from what they wanted from Jesus, we can see the first thing about ourselves in terms of Jesus. Here's what we see first about ourselves. Our first focus, for those of us who are Christians and maybe even our, our first focus is often and wrongly a this world focus. A this world focus. Hey, Jesus, yeah, that miracle revealed something about you, but I'm not really worried about what it revealed about you spiritually. I just want another bagel. I just want another free fish sandwich. I, I just want something here and now. So many of us, I think, as Christians <clears throat> live with this tension. And the tension is that on one hand, as Christians, we absolutely believe that there is an eternity we absolutely believe that eternal things matter and things that are spiritual matter and doing things for the kingdom matter. We believe that what is eternal ultimately matters. We believe that on one hand, but on the other hand, we consume ourselves with prioritizing all sorts of things about the here and the now. We consume ourselves while believing that eternal things matter, and we do, but our actions and our priorities and our focus and our drive so many times is not on eternal things that matter, but on material things or comfort things or the, getting the best of things or getting better things. And it's all about what can I get here, 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 now, 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 material, 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 stuff, stuff, stuff. How can I get a better car? How can I get a nicer kitchen renovation? How can I get a bigger house? How can I get into the best college? How can I get on as the MVP of the soccer team? How can I get the accolades? How can I get the promotion? How can I get the better 401k? How do I sell stocks to prevent this? How do I get out of crypto to get into something? Now, 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 here, here, here. I absolutely believe the things of eternity matter. Boom. Here, here, here. Now, now, now doesn't mean we don't believe those things. It just means in the daily grind of our lives, what often consumes people who believe that eternal things matter are all sorts of material, temporal things that at the end of the day doesn't even matter. I was on a kick for a while of going to estate sales. And, and you know what happens when you go to estate sales? particularly the third and final day of an estate sale, you walk into this amazingly large house that at one time was the house that everybody wanted to be in. At the one time was the talk of the town because you should see this house. 
You, you walk into this house and everything that that person spent decades of their lives trying to accrue is scattered all over everywhere. There's their fine china that they spent everything for. People are rifling through it. There's those pictures that they leveraged everything to get. It's just on the floor. It's just, it's chaos. It's disheveled. It's run down. It's broken. And on day three, everything that at one time somebody worked so hard to get that was so important to them, that made them feel so good about themselves, felt like they had control of life, felt like they now, people would think they're important. Whatever that stuff was, the people selling it are like, bro, just give me five bucks and take whatever you want. That's going to happen to all my stuff. It is. And I literally walk into this place where these people had amazing collections of whatever that at one time they leveraged everything to get, and now it's about to go in the dumpster if people don't give them five bucks for it. And they spent all sorts of energy and all sorts of priorities on all sorts of stuff that people having estate sales can't give away. Doesn't, I don't know those people's story. It's not a bad thing. Having stuff isn't bad, right? I say that every time. Having money is not a bad thing. The, the question is, how do we steward our money? The question is, what do we do with our stuff? The question is, what do we prioritize? Do we prioritize our money or do we prioritize God's kingdom? And instead of coming to Jesus and asking Jesus, Jesus, how can I serve you in eternal things? Sometimes what happens is we come to Jesus as a means to obtain what we want in now things. We just want some more bagels. We just want some more free stuff from Jesus. And the focus becomes, <clears throat> how do I approach Jesus in a way to try to leverage Jesus to get something from him? How do I approach Jesus how do I pray right? How do I <clears throat> worship right? How do I study my Bible right? How do I leverage Jesus as a means to try to get something from him as opposed to how do I approach Jesus being willing to give up everything for him? Those are two different approaches. Two different approaches. And if I'm honest, I drift over towards this approach a lot. And I, I, I work hard and pray, and I, I move towards this, but many times my first approach, when I want something, when I need something, when I don't have something, when something happens, it's okay, what do I do, how do I try, how do I posture myself, try to leverage Jesus to get something from Jesus? And then after doing that for a while, I'm like, you're a moron. I, I need to be over here saying, man, how do I come to Jesus saying, I'm willing to give up everything for Jesus, we sang Be Thou My Vision. Some of y'all, man, you loved it. That's an old song, which is great. It's an amazing song. I love old songs. We love old songs at Calvary. Some of you got, we all sang Be Thou My Vision. But many times we don't really come to Jesus that way and say, Jesus, be my vision. What we come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I got a vision. I'd love you to partner with me in my vision. I don't, I'm not witty enough to make up a lyric to a song that says that. That's many <clears throat> of our approaches. Uh, in the 70s and the 80s, the 80s, best decade ever to live. It's true. I'm a, true, I'm a pastor. I wouldn't lie to you. Everything was better in the 80s. In the 80s, uh, probably now we're late 70s, when I was a kid growing up, uh, it was an era when, <clears throat> in different cereals, they would have some trinket in the cereal box. Does anybody remember the era when there would be, it was always the super sugary cereals that my parents would never let me get, because like, whatever, right? Deprived me of all sorts of lucky charms. That's why I'm so, so bothered today. But in the, in the 70s, you'd get a cereal box, and, and you'd see commercials during Saturday morning cartoons. During Saturday morning wrestling, they'd have commercials for these cereal boxes, and there'd be toy in there, right? There'd be like a squirt gun that big, or there'd be like some stickers, or glow-in-the-dark magic ink. And when you were a little kid, you know what you would do when your parents weren't looking? 
you would get that cereal box. You would open it up. You make sure mom and dad are out like mowing the lawn or something. And then this is what you do. You would get a big bowl and you would dump all the cereal into the bowl. Because you didn't care about the cereal. You just cared about the little magic decoder ring sticker that was inside the cereal, right? You just could care less about the cereal. You just wanted to get what came from the box of cereal. And many times the cereal was simply in the way. How many times do we do that with Jesus? How many times do we just want what we can get from Jesus? And Jesus himself, we won't say it. But Jesus himself and what Jesus asks and what Jesus demands and what Jesus calls us to is kind of in the way. Because what we really want is this that we can get from Jesus. Do you have a decision before you? Do you have a decision before you? You probably do. How are you approaching that decision? Whatever that decision is before you, what questions are you asking as you try to decide what to do about that decision? What path to take, what conversation to have, what to do, what to not do? And many times when we come to decisions, a helpful approach is to kind of just ask questions around that decision. And and many times the first question that you ask when you're making the decision can be one of the most formative questions. Many times the first question that you think about or the first question that you drill in when you're making that decision can be really one of the most fundamental shaping and driving decisions. If you're deciding something this morning or you're trying to figure something out, what's been the first question that you've asked as you've come to that decision? What's been the first thing you've tried to analyze when you've come to that decision? Are you asking something generally about what's going to make life better for me? Or are you asking, what makes the most impact for eternity? Now, let's not go crazy. The kind of bagel that you get, I don't really know if you get an everything toasted with cream cheese or an onion toasted with butter. I'm not sure that makes a huge impact for eternity. But you know the questions that I'm asking about what question you're making. I'm not asking you, what kind of bagel do you want after this? I'm asking, what life decision is before you? What life choice is in front of you? And when you come to that trying to decide what to do, what question are you asking? And is your first question, which of these options will make life better for me? Or is your first question, which of these options will make a bigger impact for eternity and for God's kingdom? And even if I don't know which that impact would be, which of these decisions do I feel aligns more with the priorities of God's kingdom? Which question are you asking? Are you even thinking about the second? Or are you simply thinking, what's going to be a bigger impact for me? And that does not mean that it's wrong for you to renovate your kitchen. Look, I've said this again. I'm going to say it until the day I die. The Well, not necessarily the only reason. A huge reason that I am standing on the stage where I am with all sorts of things is because people who were incredibly wealthy throughout different moments in my family's story through seminary and through pastoring have used their resources as a way to provide for our family to help us pay tuition or get through seminary or meet needs. And they weren't doing that for us. They ultimately were doing that for God and to partner with what God had called us to do for the work of the kingdom. It is not wrong to renovate your kitchen. But if you renovate your kitchen, use that renovated kitchen for the glory of God. It is not wrong for you if you have the funds and if you prioritize and if you use your resources to the Lord as a first priority and you have excess. It is not a sin necessarily to get a Cadillac Black Escalade. But if you do, listen to me, be willing to throw a bunch of youth group kids in that Cadillac Escalade and help them get to the retreat. When you come to a decision, you have a decision in front of you, what choice, what are you asking? Are you asking the first question being, what's going to make life better for me? Are you asking which of these decisions can make more of an impact on eternity? It is um, a unique thing to be a pastor. It's a unique thing to be a pastor. It's, it, there's obviously differences than other jobs. For those of you who work in a non-pastoral job, 
a lot of what people in marketplace or trades or anything, whether you're fire, it's always about how do I get to the next level. And so you make choices thinking about how do I get to the next level? How do I get promoted to this? How do I get become that? How do I switch companies to get another job, right? And the questions are how do I on my career trajectory, uh, you know, advance myself? get things better for myself, get to a place where I'll get a bigger bonus for myself or something better for myself. That drives a lot of our decisions in life. And it is a challenge, right? Because I used to be a lawyer. And so pastors are kind of in this weird place because it's like that's not really what should drive the way we think about what God might call us to do. And if you've ever been in ministry, there are times that you thought about, oh, man, Maybe I should go be a missionary in the Bahamas. That would be a nice gig. I could have some sand. I could have some pineapple. I could do ba-ba. I could get a little bow. And then for those of us who are in ministry, what we start to do is say, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not on this career trajectory to try to better myself or get bigger bonuses or get more plush assignments. How has God made me? Where is God calling me? And within all that, what can I do in this moment to have a bigger impact on his kingdom? For those in ministry, we work, we do. We struggle with how do I get the bigger, the better, ba 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 But then we realize, whoa, that's not what this gig is about. And so we try for the Holy Spirit's help to reorient ourselves to what choice can I make in terms of calling or decision or act, not to necessarily get better, but to simply serve God as more faithfully as I can. Some of you probably are thinking, well, that sounds good. Like, yeah, a pastor should think that, right? That's good, Peter. I am glad that you as a pastor try to process that. I'm glad that others do because, man, if a pastor was simply trying to keep getting the next and the bigger, the blah, blah, that doesn't sound right, right? And so you're probably thinking to yourself, I'm glad pastors think that way. But here's the challenge. All of us should think that way. All of us should think that way. Expanding the kingdom of God is not simply the job of a pastor. Stewarding what God's given us for the kingdom of God is not simply the job of a pastor. That grid that I talked about is not just the grid that a guy with a wraparound mic on a stage who preaches should work through. It is the grid that every single one of you should work through. And what would it look like if every single one of us worked through that grid? What could be the potential impact for God's kingdom if every single Christian worked through that grid? I don't know. But Jesus is like, man, don't just come to me for bagels. Don't just come to me for another free fish sandwich. How does Jesus respond to those folks and to us when in a moment we have the wrong priorities on our perspectives? Well, he flips it in verse 27, right? He's like, look, you guys are just here because you want some more free meals. And then in verse 27, he starts to redirect them. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus is saying, look, he's inverting the grid that they're coming to him in. And he's saying, don't just see me as a way to get something material now but you need to see me as a way to get a means of life forever. He, he's taking them to a bigger lens and a broader lens outside of just the here and the now, what have you done for me lately, to man, we got to think about eternity. And he's here, I'm here to help you guys think about eternity, Jesus is saying. I'm here to give you something related to eternity, Jesus is saying. That's where we need to be focusing, not just on if I'm going to give you something else for free. Our focus is often wrongly a focus on the here and the now in this world, but Jesus' first concern is our spiritual need and eternal things. Our first focus is often and wrongly a this-world focus, but Jesus' first concern is on our spiritual need and on eternal things. This does not mean that Jesus is unconcerned with what you're facing here and now. It doesn't. 
It, it, throughout the Gospels, Jesus is constantly meeting people's physical needs. He is healing people. He is providing for people. He is helping people. When he sees someone in need, he never walks by that person, almost never walks by that person. This does not mean he's not, this does not mean he's unconcerned with what concerns us. He is. In fact, in the New Testament, we're told, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, bring your requests, bring your supplications, bring your prayers, bring your concerns before the Lord. Your heavenly Father is deeply concerned and cares about what you are physically facing. He cares about what's stressing you. He cares about your health. He cares about those needs that you have, but he, at the same time, is even more concerned with our spiritual needs. He's even more concerned with our spiritual needs. And the greatest spiritual need that every single one of us faces or has faced is we need forgiveness from God. The deepest need you will ever have is a need to be forgiven by God. That's not me saying it because I felt like saying that on whatever date it is. That's because that's what this book says. That's because what Jesus will say. That's because what is a distinctively Christian belief is the belief that at one point in our lives, every single one of us thinks we knew better than God. Every single one of us thought we knew what would work out better. Every single one of us in some way on some day thought, God's this? Well, God's holding out on me. And I want something better than God. I want something that God's not giving me. So I will disobey God and I will go chase what I want. That's what happened in chapter, you know, three of the story. That is what we, we were born into the consequences of sin, right? Born into original sin. But it's not just that that was something we're born into. It's something that I have actively chosen to do. And so have you. And what the Bible says, what Jesus says, what the New Testament says, what the Old Testament says is that God is just and holy. And a just, holy God at some point has to punish things that are harmful like sin. Have to punish disobedience that causes chaos like sin. And me and you and we were all under the place of being subject to punishment. But we also know that God is a loving God. And he's looking down, thinking to himself, I don't want to have to pour out all my wrath on them because I made them and because I love them. And I don't want them to experience that. And the greatest need that every single one of us will ever face is that dilemma of being in a place because of our sin we will be punished, but how do we not receive the punishment of God? And what Jesus is saying to them is here, like, look, guys, I'm here to talk to you about eternal life. I'm here to talk to you. What's woven under that is this idea of you don't have to be punished. You don't have to be guilty anymore. You don't have to have all that stuff that you wish you hadn't done be held against you. There is a way to be free from it, and there is a way to be forgiven of it, and I'm not here to give you an everything bagel. I'm here to give you that. So let's talk about that. He redirects them, right? Guys, I'm here to give you eternal life. So they get into this. They're like, oh, they slowly start to... Interesting. Maybe there's something different going on here. And so they ask them this question, right? If that's what you've come to offer, Jesus, you've been talking about eternal life, how do we get that? That's what they start thinking about and they start asking about in verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? He's just said, I've come to give you, right? I'm not here to give you food that perishes, but food that endures to eternal life. I'm here to give you eternal life. And they finally wrap their eyes around like, oh, that sounds pretty good. Like I, and their first question is, so what do we need to do? What work do we need to do in order to get that? There is something hardwired within us that wants to work for what God is willing to freely give us. There is something hardwired within me and within you that hears all this stuff about God giving us free, you know, giving us grace and mercy and it's free. And we're like, okay, that's really good, but 
I'm just going to feel a little bit better if I work for it. I'm just going to feel a little bit better if I bring something good to the table. I want to feel a little better if I do something to make myself feel like I'm worthy of that forgiveness. Then it feels okay. There's pride within so many of us that causes us to want to think that it's up to us to bring something to the table so that then we'll be good enough for God to then forgive us. That's what they're doing. We don't, what do we need to do? What work do we need to do? Is that the right approach? Is the right approach thinking if Jesus came to give eternal life, then we need to do something first to put ourselves in a position where we're worthy of that? How does Jesus respond to that question? Verse 29, Jesus answered him, okay, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. That you believe in him who he has sent, i.e., Jesus is saying, me. You can flip, right? Our initial inclination can be to prove we deserve the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Jesus on the other hand, freely gives forgiveness and mercy to those who believe. This story is not a story of what you need to do for Jesus in order to be forgiven. It is a story of everything that Jesus has already done for you, which is fully sufficient for you to be forgiven. Are you resting as a Christian in what Jesus has freely given? Are you resting in the fact that what makes you acceptable ultimately to God is not what you bring to the table, but the fact that you are in Christ? In Christ. He doesn't see you. He sees Jesus, and that's the reason that you're acceptable to him. He adores you, but he sees the holiness and the perfection and the forgiveness of his son when he looks at you. And that's why we're all acceptable to him. Are you resting in that? Or, as a Christian, do you feel like you constantly have to keep churning in order to keep that or to live up to that? or to earn that, or to show that you're worthy of that. And so maybe you didn't pray for 17 minutes this week. Maybe you only prayed for 14 minutes. And when you got in your car, you're like, oh, my goodness. And I'm serious about this. You felt guilt. Maybe God doesn't love me anymore. And so you stopped, and you pulled over your car, and you prayed for 15 more minutes to make up the gap because then you thought, okay, now I've, I've made myself worthy to God. We talk so many times as Christians about grace freely given, but we live so many times as Christians as else we have to work to live up to the grace that we've been freely given and that we really do have to earn it in order to keep it. Are you resting in what Jesus has freely given or are you burdening yourself with trying to prove you deserve it and are worthy of it? Do you think that you... And this is sometimes for people who aren't Christians. I've heard this. The thought is, yeah, you know, I need to get right with God. I really need to be forgiven for God. So I'm going to clean myself up. And then when I clean myself up, I'll come to God and he'll accept me. You don't have to clean yourself up. You can't clean yourself up. And if we could have, Jesus wouldn't have had to die for us. He died for us because... We need it. How did the people respond? The people responded sometimes the way we respond. So they're like, okay, Jesus, I hear you saying all this stuff. And then they said to him, verse 30. So then they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate men in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven. Jesus has said these comments and they're like, okay, that sounds really interesting, but give us a sign. 
If you give us a sign, then maybe we'll believe and maybe we'll find you worthy. They link back to manna. Manna was this deal in the Old Testament where God provided this unknown breakfast protein bar every morning. And they're like, hey, that seemed pretty cool. Can you do some hubba-da-bubba-da like that, right? Abracadabra, Jesus, make something appear and we'll believe you. Give us a sign and then we'll trust you. The irony is 24 hours ago they had their sign. 24 hours ago, he did something to prove to them who he was and how he was not simply a human rabbi of flesh and blood, but they still wanted more. We, some, next thing about ourselves, sometimes struggle with not believing and not trusting Jesus. We sometimes struggle with not believing or not trusting Jesus, but Jesus has already proved his trustworthiness. Jesus has already proved his trustworthiness. Sometimes unbelief is never satisfied no matter how much proof is given. If you're a non-Christian this morning, if you got dragged here because you don't even know why, or maybe you've been here for 15 years and you still don't know why, and, and you're kind of saying what these people are saying. You're saying, hey, if he would just give me a sign, if he would just pop down and appear to me, if he would make an angel fly through the service at Calvary, that'd be kind of cool. That would be kind of cool. I am your angel flying through the service at Calvary. <laughs> you think if he'd just give me a sign and you're not Christian, here is what I'd, lovingly I'd say to you. He's given you a sign. And the sign is an empty tomb. He has given you material proof and evidence that who he said he was, he really is. And so instead of waiting for angels to fly through Calvary, I would encourage you to go back and explore the validity of the empty tomb. And go back and come up with one reason that is more reasonable and logical for why the tomb was empty than an actual moment when the supernatural invaded the natural and God Almighty brought a person back to life. If you're a Christian, maybe you're struggling with something, maybe you're struggling with worry, maybe you're struggling with doubt, maybe you're struggling with, I'm facing this situation, is Jesus going to come through for me again? We know what you've already been given a sign. And your sign is the past faithfulness of God that shows he can be trusted once again. There is a track record for all of us of him faithfully providing for us. Usually never early, which I don't like. I'd like all his provisions right now. Can I get like the, you know, you get the lottery and you get it all and like paid out throughout your life. I want the lump sum payout. God, is there a way that I can get the lump sum payment of all your faithfulness like right now? That'd be great. God's like, no, because then you would become an arrogant jerk who didn't depend on me. And he's right because he's God and that is true. And so he says, I'm going to make you go through stuff. And each step of the way, you're going to have to depend on me. And each step of the way, I will be faithful. Maybe not everything you want, but everything that you need, and you can trust me because I've done that time and time and time and time and time and time again in the past. He has done that in your story. He has. And so if you're in a moment where you're like, God, give me a sign right now that you're still going to be faithful to me, he's like, Bubba, I've already got it. I've already given it to you. Think about last month. Think about last year. Think about the last hell. Think about the last thing. He's already proved his faithfulness. And I'm going to ask the worship team to start coming up here in response to their demand for a sign. And some of you are like, you ain't said no I am statement yet, Peter. It's about to come. Ready? Hold on to your seatbelts. In response to their desire for a sign, Jesus reiterates who he is. And he says this in verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. In other words, I am the source of the one who can give you eternal life. I am the source of the one who can give you what you need. I am the source of the one who can feed you spiritually. I am the one from whom forgiveness comes. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. 
all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up to the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. How did the people respond? We see the response. They didn't respond with amens. This is what they said. The Jews grumbled because of him, saying, I'm the bread of life who comes down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother they know? They're like, what? This guy's crazy. We knew this kid when he was growing up, running around, playing in the dirt. And they mocked, and they didn't believe, and they'd heard him tell them truth. And they had to decide how they were going to respond to it. And here's the final thing that we see about ourselves is this. Every single one of every single one of us, we cannot escape this decision. Every single one of us has to decide what we're going to do with Jesus. We do. Maybe some of us already have, and maybe some of us already have. And Jesus says, come and believe. Come and believe. Every single one of us has to decide what we're going to do with Jesus, who we think he is. Will we surrender to him being the king who we follow? Are we going to see him as a crazy dude? Are we going to see him as a nice dude? Are we going to see him as a box of cereal to just, who's in the way of what we really want? We have to decide what to do with Jesus, and Jesus says, come and believe. And the question is, what will you do with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? How are you surrendering and responding to Jesus today? Today. We have an opportunity as a community to end our time together by affirming and reminding each other, for those of us who believe who Jesus is, who he is and what he's done and what he is like and, and how he gives to us the things that we need. We have a chance to sing together to, as a community, affirm those things and to remind ourselves and each other of those things. And so I'd invite you to stand up and let's sing this song together and then we'll conclude our time.